Good evening. Welcome to the Science of Fiction. Uh, today's topic will be uh, Here Comes the Science Bit, which I guess could really be described as what every show is about. This is the science bit coming, although we've preceded by a science bit as well. Yes, well, what we decided was to talk about all those things you come across where you see like a TV advert and it has techno babble, or just really dubious science, or maybe in Star Trek where they have to do something totally made up, which, to be honest, is most Star Trek episodes. Yeah, supposedly the Star, the Star Trek strip, script even had this, these sections specially labelled. Anyway, we are joined once again by our regular guest, Tuka. Yeah, hello. Good to be here again. Welcome back. Thank you very much. Have, have you been enjoying, have you been pining for this studio since you last came here? I, absolutely. This, this, this warm, small room which smells of um, interesting smells is what I'll leave it at. I think, yeah, it's... A, it's um, I don't think people came prepared for the weather. Yeah, it's not. It's, it's been a sudden uptick. I guess this is the first time this studio has been used while it's been warmer, not snowing outside. So yeah, novel. Yeah, something like that. So yeah, if you want to join in our general beration of adverts, feel free to um, just type something in in the web form. Uh, unless you're listening to this on Listen Again, and then don't because we won't get it. But if you are listening to it on Listen Again, you can send us an email on show at scienceoffiction.co.uk, and we'll try and get back to you later on a future show. On a future show, yes, in the future. So, yeah, we've got a few things to talk about to start off with. Uh, so we're going to talk about toothbrushes. Yeah, so I, I, I kind of didn't really know when toothbrushing caught on, and it turns out that apparently until after the Second World War, most people didn't brush their teeth, and it was imported back from the uh, m- most of the US Army's discipline. Um, apparently, apparently you know, soldiers were made to brush their teeth, and as a result, this was imported back to the US at least. Well, presumably the US needed it most because they had their fizzy, sugary drinks, and before that time, not many people were <laughs> obliterating their teeth with things. And and from then on, of course, as you know, the the American colonial influence spread, uh, everyone else needed it as well. Fantastic, and and even today, when you look at American teeth, they are they hurt in the eyes. You know, you need a pair of sunglasses on to look at them. I guess they've they've mastered the science of perfecting teeth after the fact. Well, of well, making them as white as possible through some interesting techniques, which that I'm sure are healthy. Do, so they're perfect. Do Dutch have better teeth than British people? Yes, but then everybody in, in 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 continental Europe consistently makes the jokes about the Brits as having the worst teeth uh, all round. So, so it's not just Americans who think we have bad teeth. No, it's the continental Europeans oh. always make fun. But then generally, you're considered um, curious creatures. <laughs> yes, it's amazing what having a strip of water between you and the rest well, of the exactly. Continent. I mean, it's not your fault. It's a large island, uh, and, and inbreeding happens. You know, it says the person whose country is half underwater. <laughs> Not as much on the water as most of the UK, I hasten to add, at the moment. <laughs> well, it's, it's sunny, it's sunny. Um, yes, so it's basically just a case of where people make up stuff, but then actually it sells quite well and has a good reason. Yeah, because people people started brushing their teeth, but they didn't want to use toothpaste. You know, toothpaste is expensive and it seems pointless. Um, and you can tell people to your blue in the face that if you use teeth, toothbrushes, it'll get rid of little bacteria between your teeth and so on. Um, and that had no effect. So apparently, um, according to uh, The Power of uh, Habit by... Charles Durg, maybe I typoed his name. Um, the te- te- the technique landed upon by uh, toothpaste marketers was to, was to focus on the film you can feel on the inside of your teeth with your tongue, which is completely harmless. Um, and you and when you eat anything, it rubs off. But they but they said you know, this film is terrible, and this is you know your teeth being dirty. And if you use our miraculous toothpaste, the film will be gone, and it's the only way to get rid of it. And it is a way to get rid of it. Um, but as a result of getting people into the habit of feeling that and realizing, wow, my teeth are dirty, I better clean them, toothpaste became everyone's mm. daily routine. See, now I've just suddenly remembered, and I think I'm going to re- remember that this is a QI thing they catch people out with. The original toothpaste was meant to be made from coal, but it wasn't. 
So like QI asked the question, and it was one of the coal, and in fact, it was the tooth bristles, of course, made from coal. Yeah. But coal, coal's good for the gut, generally. I mean, get, gets it? rid of. Well, the, uh, this is what um, uh, apes and various monkeys will eat it actively. To obviously, they're eating lots of cellulose and plant and leaf material, and it uh, sort of calms the gut down and cleans it. The, uh, it purifies and uh, gets all the rubbish out of the gut, which uh, is quite interesting. Oh, so is this is this similar to how cat food contains ash? In a non-trivial proportion. Quite possibly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, mm-hmm. uh, animals are remarkably good at self uh, self-medicating. Seem to be better at doing it than us, actually, which is which is interesting. Or at least no, I, I think that they just aren't so mental about it. No, you know, we, we we have extended the human lifespan enough to convince me that medicine has a purpose. <laughs> I, I guess self-medicating is used to mean something a little bit different in humanity normally. Yeah, no, but it's it's interesting. I don't know uh, if any of our listeners have got uh, animals. Cats and dogs are a good example. I mean, I know that my parents' dogs always used to go into the vegetable patch and the herb garden and just selectively eat certain of the plants. And like, we could never figure out whether it was just because they tasted good, but they didn't do it anywhere else in the garden, which was always interesting. So they mm. knew exactly what they wanted. Uh, clearly. I, I do the same in a sweet shop. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, the other one's going to come up. Have you come across pantothene in um, shampoos? I have not. I, I don't pay that much attention to, to shampoo adverts on the, on the assumption that everything in them is but, garbage. But it's got the science of genes with it. Oh. The science of genes in shampoo. I mean, I don't know. Brilliant. Who came up with that line? The shampoos that breed together and form baby shampoos. Yes, clearly. But pantothene. So I come across, came across it because in my PhD I had to use this compound a lot. And it becomes, um, it's a precursor to vitamin B5. So it sort of sticks together and you have to split it up. Your body can do fine. And they, they stick it in shampoo because once upon a time there was an experiment which showed it kept hair colour in mice. Uh, never in people and never that well in mice either. Mice, uh, mice aren't well known for their like diverse hair colours, are they? Lab mice especially are generally white. Huh. But but presumably they, that part of the experiment they could work out. But yeah, um, it was also a massive deficiency. So why you'd want to rub it into your hair rather than eating it in your diet. Uh, but this is really weird because this molecule I had to use all the time and one of the things it's very good for is it binds water really well it's quite sticky to water so it will make your hair shinier from just being there so it, it does have a use but not the reason they give whatsoever uh, and in, it's quite a cool molecule because it's used in fatty acid synthases so it's used for creating fatty acid and it's, all, it's a bit that sort of goes around as the enzyme works picking up little mo- monomers and sticking them together to make the chain like each brick of Lego to make the chain longer and longer and longer to make your really long fatty acid so it's, it's quite a cool little molecule I'll be sure to rub it all over my hair as soon as I can. Yes. Well, you could just rub egg or beer over your hair. I heard that works well. Okay, listeners, if you like rubbing uh, egg or beer in your hair or any other kind of biz- bizarre um, activities, maybe you could uh, let us know. You can, as Andy mentioned, you can type into the form on the web player or you can text CAM plus your message to A0809, which costs 10p. Um, but mostly use the web form. It'll be much easier for everyone involved. And we'll be back with you after this. It was... 100 degrees as we sat beneath a willow tree Whose tears didn't care, they just hung in the air And refused to fall, to fall And I knew I'd made a horrible call And now the state line felt like
treacherous streets and kids strung out on homemade speed and we shared a bed in which I could not sleep at all Back to the science of fiction. That was Crooked Teeth by Death Death Cab for Cutie, which has nothing about teeth in it. I think it, it, it mentions that he likes someone's crooked teeth. Uh, okay, so they need to, they're British. <laughs> yes, they need fixing. They need fixing. Yeah, do, do, but do they really? Humans are fine. Well, I mean, Salman Cal is a good example of this. Like, he'd amassed a fortune, went to the States, and still had to had his teeth sort of straightened because uh, they told him he couldn't go on radio shows there. I mean, that might be a uh, radio TV show. Radio shows. God, the final on radio. <laughs> the radio is fantastic. Um, yeah, exactly. You can have a mug of any. Uh, maybe that's why we're standing in a radio studio together. Yes, so one thing I want to bring up was this is a great thing. A physicist published a paper uh, a little while ago are called The Proof of Innocence. And when we mean a paper, we mean a paper in an academic journal. And he basically used physics to prove that he wasn't guilty of uh, having to pay a f- fine for jumping a red light. So this was to do with the ca- with the camera being obscured at the relevant moment or something? Well, it was more that the police officer was standing and watched it, and he thought the guy didn't slow as he came up to the stop line. Uh, where, in fact, he argues he did. It was just the fact that the angle meant that the angular velocity is not the same as the linear velocity. So he was acceler- decelerating at such a rate that it looked like he was at a constant speed, where, in fact, he would have had to be going slower. For So it's all about perception and how it's very confusing. And he actually he got off it. He got, he got $400 saved. The, uh, the con- apparently the paper concluded that it isn't the police officer's fault that, that here she was wrong, as their perception of reality did not properly reflect reality, which... 
It sounds rude, but actually is true of all of us. Yeah, all of us, most of the time. Eyewitness testimony is a fantastic example. I, I think loads of people here will probably have seen that experiment where uh, people are throwing a basketball back and forth. And for a good, I think it is nine solid seconds, they have a gori- man in a gorilla suit walk onto the stage and wave at the camera, walk off. And about half the people don't see this this guy uh, because they're so focused on one task. And the same has been true in chasing and robberies and so forth, where people have said, well, how could you not see this man in agony on the street? But if, you know, the police might have been going after uh, a convict and they will not have noticed that they completely drove over somebody. And it sounds really, really bad, but it's amazing how limited our perception is from day to day. But I mean, the same is true if you're driving, you stick stuff on the side of the road to try and see if people have been observant. They use this argument, drivers aren't looking around, but actually what's happening is they're casting out un- irrelevant information exactly. all the time because there's too much going yeah. on in the world. Do you know what the safest cities are to cycle and walk typically? What defines you, a city that is safe for cyclists and walkers? Is it a busy city, you going to tell me? A very busy city where there are lots of them because and people become more aware. One of the reasons motorcyclists get hit so much more often is because there's, on average, uh, statistically significant people that hit motorcyclists have never been on a motorcycle themselves. Huh. Which is why, despite the fact that in the Netherlands, okay, there's other factors because we've got completely separated uh, cycle lanes and so forth. But part of the reason there aren't as many bike accidents is because people are expecting cyclists absolutely everywhere. Uh, and you notice this, I think, in other cities in the UK where there aren't as many cyclists and you see how people drive with cyclists and it's much more much more dangerous, uh, even though they might not be going any faster or things like that. Just because the, 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 the kinds of things they're, they're looking for, the kind of... Clues as to where people might turn. They're not so used to them. They're not. They're not expecting it. And if hmm. you know, and they've done simulations with airplane pilots who have managed to hit, uh, you know, in simulations another plane because they're so used to the air traffic controllers um, be making sure that the runway is free. That in simulations, literally, and actually, in 1977, I think a Dutch KLM hit a, a Pan Am flight. Uh, like they, everybody on both planes died because, and you know, there's this massive plane on the runway. And you'd think that people would see, but they're so not used and not looking for it that they just didn't see it I guess they're, I guess they're, they're looking to line themselves up with the runway but they're re- and you know ch- checking yeah. that you know the, the, the decelerating at the right rate and so on yeah. um, and relying on the, the voice in their ears to exactly. tell them not to land and looking versus seeing is a very different thing yeah 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 so that brings us on to our next thing, which is sort of how statistics and how you believe something. And I can see you're holding in your hand a copy of Ben Goldacre's Bad Science. Brilliant book. Uh, some people would disagree with he's very vehement about his um, his campaigns. Um, and we can come back to uh, what you think about that a bit later. But there's some some excellent examples. I mean, he covers everything from homeopathy to the placebo effect. Um, and the question is, of course, you know, it's things like vitamin pills. In summary, basically, if you're suffering from glaucoma or have a serious deficiency or disease or disorder, then vitamin pills can be crucial and they can really improve your health. For most of us, wandering around Cambridge from day to day, uh, vitamin pills are going to do one thing, and that's going is give you expensive urine. You know, there's nothing else to it whatsoever. It is interesting that they're claiming that people are getting more and more rickets, vitamin D yes. deficiency, which surprises me because... Uh, to get vitamin D you need light to synthesise yes. and I, I just find it really odd that 
Are people really not getting it's, out? It's uh, a combination of people not getting out and also people uh, migration. So they started seeing increases in rickets when we had uh, more migration from the Middle East, where you have uh, serious uh, aspects of the population who will cover themselves up fully or uh, most uh, huh. mostly. Uh, and you see the same in the Netherlands, especially in areas where you've got a lot of immigration and people from other ethnic backgrounds, uh, whereby it's not appropriate to expose f- uh, very much flesh. And that actually has a has a drastic impact uh, because suddenly they're in a country where there's not as much sun and they're not exposing themselves which they weren't doing back home either but the levels of sunlight were so much greater there that they'd still get enough from it and that's one of the arguments as to why we're seeing an increase in rickets as well but I've no doubt it's it's our in, indoor lifestyle for a lot of people that is also well, and I mean skin colour obviously comes into yes. it so yeah. people who've got fair skin absorb more UV well there's less defence against it so they can make more but the other thing is of course those people are more likely now to start putting on sun cream and they'll put it on immediately so they're blocking all the UV so you need a very something like only 20 minutes in a British summer 15 minutes in in your day you'll have more than you can use up and that's all you need but you're right Um, the question is are people blocking that all out in advance because we're so worried about cancers and everything else I think again it sounds silly but it's common sense and having just a balance somewhere Mm. Uh, between the extremes yeah but yeah easier said than done for these you know six months of the year where people it's only it's only light for a few hours of the day and those hours are when you're in, indoors yeah and, but remember you, we don't necessarily need uh, what what stimulates vitamin D production isn't necessarily sunny sunny conditions it can be it's any uh, it's a specific type of UV light but you also get that when it's not specifically sunny oh, so, so you uh, will you will to some extent you know you can get sunburnt under clouds yes I vaguely did yes. yeah so clouds actually let for a lot of UV so yeah. people unwittingly like will lie in their back garden exactly. and get completely sunburnt on a cloudy day uh, it's quite common in Britain and quite funny yes it's not funny for them no it's funny it's... for everyone else to go you got sunburned in Bristol. Yeah. I just thought it would be worth clarifying. It isn't, you know, your bright sunny light mm-hmm. that you need to to make it. And and uh, yeah, I guess it's all part of it. And for those people, of course, taking that vitamin pill can make all the difference. Um, but on the whole, there's, you know, you're putting a lot more in your system than it actually needs, and it'll go straight out again. But this is this, this is the same as people taking um, vitamin C pills when they've got a really heavy cold. And you can buy these, you know, eight eight hundred percent RDA pills, which presumably don't actually help you recover from your cold any quicker if if, if you've got if you're healthy if you have a vitamin c deficiency yeah. right right you'll have but it's quite there are very few people ever get scurvy these days um yeah. people who live solely on microwave meals might just be able to do it i think there was one case uh, quite a funny ga- case in the early 1990s because obviously this is monitored um and one of our professors who's a nutritionist typically working in the gambia where you do have serious nutritional problems uh said there was one case in the um in the uk whereby there was a young lad who uh, his mother couldn't get him to eat veg and he was literally living off of those crackers those uh, rice cracker things wow. and um uh, he didn't like to drink uh, uh, milk or orange juice so it was all always one of these artificial juices which is basically sugar and he more or less ate that and and um occasionally uh, they you know they might be able to get him to eat some macaroni and cheese but all the reconstituted stuff and that was it and he was diagnosed with rickets even though on all other accounts he was he was should have been fine <laughs> well yeah listeners don't do that yeah don't drink health drink healthy eat healthy drink healthy too D- drink orange juice it's great exactly so yeah, so we're in your teeth though. Should we just be rude about homeopathy now? Yeah. Yeah. What do you think about homeopathy? It doesn't work. No. It's, it's magic. 
it is it is magic but people want to believe in magic and i think this is where my my devil's advocate question is and this isn't the you know i i'm against uh, all the treatments which tend to sucker in people who've no hope or in conditions so serious that they are trying everything um but i think the devil's advocate question is um homeopathy if it if it makes people think that it works and therefore it improves their uh, behavior or their well-being, then is it wrong? Right. I mean, I guess this is, and there's a kind of side point here that there's the whole kind of skeptic identity that people like to adhere to and say, oh, this is all about, you know, I'm, I, I'm a very rational thinker and I would like to spread this around the world. But I wrote a very interesting uh, uh, essay titled why, I'm, why I am no longer a skeptic by someone who said, you know, he started up by saying, he hasn't come around to the effectiveness of homeopathy at all, mm-hmm. but he's become disillusioned with how people take the sceptical identity as an excuse to basically sneer at those who 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 haven't who don't have the academic background that they do, or who believe things which they, which they disagree with, yeah. which is not a particularly you know not that helpful. But it goes both ways because, of course, we it's very easy now to discredit early techniques. And uh, I was very lucky uh, that Andrew invited me to Bright Club um, last Friday, which was excellent fun and I would strongly recommend to people. And I had an example on there of um, I was making pushing fun at the early 19th century when people, uh, well-off males and even including one pope, um, effectively got uh, testicular extracts as... Um, um, put in their bottom from donkeys, roosters and dogs to help improve their stamina. Now, this seems like a, a strange thing to think to do. Okay, so this is the whole time they were figuring out about glands and hormones and they figured, you know, the dangly bits between men's legs, they probably have something to do with it. But why, you know, why does it work for some men and not for others? And they were experimenting. And mm-hmm. obviously there were some animals which were considered very virile and they thought, well, in the same way that they would actually do skin grafts, they would try and also mush up animal bits and stick them in these guys' bottom. And people would pay very, very good money. And, and uh, you know, captains of industry and the top of society would, would go to the sanatoriums to have this done. And it's very easy to sneer at that now. But then last week, of course, in China, you've got all the pills being confiscated in South Korea, actually, uh, of mushed-up be- dead baby fetuses, which, again, those pills are going for exactly the same reason. They're supposed to give men energy and stamina. Now... The question is, you know, I think it's very, in hindsight, very easy to look back. But the power of belief and people wanting to be better or wanting to be super healthy is so strong that I think a lot of us will have at some point made the mistake that we've bought something in the shop. Maybe not that pill, maybe not gone for a homeopathy treatment. But I can guarantee you've walked into a supermarket, bought stuff because on the packet it said, this will do this, it'll taste this good. And actually, you come home and you go, what the hell was I thinking? Yeah. I mean, what oh, yeah. I think what okay, I mean, this all here comes time to the top of the show. The thing which gets me homeopathy is so there's all the bit you've just talked about, uh, which is what a lot of people think. But also, what really gets me more annoyed is the fake science behind yes. it. Like when someone comes up and starts talking about, but water has a memory, and you go, if no, it doesn't. And they talk about well, there are everything called clathrates, where methane's in water, except it's at high pressure and frozen. Basically, you can get methane trapped in your eyes. That's not the same as water remembering the shape. That's that's ice remembering the shape which is kind of more believable because you can build a house out of ice so so i guess it's it's more intellectually dishonest to invent fake science to justify your um your treatment which may work for reasons you don't understand yes um 
be more honest to say you know, we, don't, we don't fully understand why, for example, uh, acupuncture seems to help people sometimes. Yeah. No one really knows why, but inventing the um, f- you know, all, all the garbage about how mm-hmm. if you put a pin in your toe, then it stimulates your liver. Yeah. That's, that's possibly yeah, I think, more harm than good. I think I get annoyed with the misuse of science rather... So I do get annoyed with people, as Duke was saying, the idea where people are just lying and trying to basically send people fraudulent products. But that's very hard to prove whether someone's a liar or disillusioned. But... Um, well, you can't prove someone's lying because they won't tell you normally. But when they start making up science and saying this is science and it's not, it does science a huge amount of damage. And I think that's a problem. Where if someone says, I'm doing this, I know you don't believe it, but I'm doing it anyway. That's kind of human because I, I think you're an odd person if you've never, as you say, if you've never done that. And, you know, if you take someone out of their field, out of where they're a good sceptic and put them into a supermarket, every single thing in that supermarket is playing with them and trying to make them do things they probably wouldn't want to do. And... You, you're not human if you those things aren't working. You just you might not know what they are. No, I, I completely agree. I think it's a case of balancing that. And I just to clarify, I don't agree with homeopathy as well. But I think there's also um, the point I'm trying to make. I think there's a very subtle debate between the placebo effect, which I mean, it wasn't until that recent that. Uh, drug companies wouldn't put the placebo results in their test studies because very often they were on par with the the new drug, you know, in right, terms of right. making people believe things. And there's uh, ample evidence of this. In the Second World War, you've got soldiers being given a simple salt uh, saline solution when they ran out of morphine. And because they believed that they were getting morphine, this had, has an effect in their behavior. And, and somehow the, there's a lot of interaction between brain and body, which is now increasingly understood. And it's shown that, you know, people can not to an over-the-top extent, but can think themselves better if they believe that to be so. And, and the med- medical, medical professionals can justify misleading their patients if there's no better option. If it's ethical, yes. which yes. is a very difficult thing to work out. I think one thing I like about Ben's book is that he does something a lot of people don't do, which is we're talking about homeopathy and we're only really hung up on the alternative medicines, but he does really go after Big Pharma, yes. which a lot of people don't. Yeah. And Big Pharma is probably the biggest thing that lets the alternative medicine get away with it, is because they go, well, why are they allowed to draw in millions and millions of pounds this when we're you know, just one person doing it. Uh, ironically, normally buying the homeopathy from Big Pharma. But the point is, we should get into check the regulated people before we sort of start being too hard on the unregulated people. Because people yeah. know they're on. Well, we should make sure they, people realise that there is a different level of regulation between the two. But before we go to the next track, we've just had an email in. I've heard you can be healthy on a diet of marmite and bread. Is this true? I, I I really hope it's true because then I'll, I'll, I'll. Should we test this? Will you can only have marmite and bread for the next week. I see. Two weeks, and we can have a control and a, and a, and have somebody just eating bread and someone just eating marmite and see what. It's 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 probably very similar to the Guinness and bread argument. Yes. Uh, which, if I remember correct, you have to have so much Guinness you would be dead from alcoholic poisoning to survive. Marmite is just broken up yeast, isn't it? Exactly, and there is a lot in it. Uh, yeah. But I. Um, I long term, and this would be a very hard experiment to do because no, we're also healthy. Bread will be the fibre, so that's fibre, the thing fibre, about yes. So, so presumably you'd have to you know be, be eating you know wholemeal bread and so on to avoid you know fibre deficiencies because exactly. yes. you just need to get things flowing. Um, so the mar- oh we need water, but I assume that's we can accept that as on the side. Marmite, it's worth it's in the right balance. I think I think they might just. It's probably too much salt. Not, not enough, like not enough fat and carbohydrates. Yeah, salt, oh, salt is an bread. interesting one because I've heard the argument, and I'd love it if somebody knows more about this. I've heard the argument being made 
that the whole salt and not too much salt in your diet is completely over the top and people who've got a problem with salt again it's really dangerous but most of us who are healthy the salt will filter through and you can get away with eating quite a lot of salt and it really won't kill yeah but you. we're on a restricted diet here so we've got to be a bit more careful yes that's true that, i mean um so, so it's got a lot of vitamins it's got a lot of, uh, it's going to have a lot of amino acids because there is protein exactly. in it, marmite there is a lot in there. I, there is. I mean, you look on the uh, re- labels behind marmite because it's something that they encourage pregnant women to eat as well, isn't it? Uh, not because of I've the B two. I mean, that's the thing. Is it's it's yeast is quite a primitive cr- organism. I mean, it's quite high up in terms of genetics and stuff, but in terms of just being a little budding thing on the ground, um, and like a lot of its genetics are actually very similar to humans, which is why it's used as a model organism. But um, yeah, it's where and it's it doesn't need much to live, which means it produces a lot of things itself, and that's why plants are so important because they're primary producers. They just convert sunlight into all the amino acids we use. Where we've lost the ability to make some of those because we just eat it. Exactly. So I suspect there's a lot in that. I suspect the problem is the ratios. Um, well, I, I might try and you know do a, a little experiment on this and upping my marmite intake and lowering my everything else intake for the next week. So you probably might just smell. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, well, we'll see how that goes. But yeah, if there's anyone who's actually a dietitian rather than a scientist. Well, they can still be a scientist, but um, rather than a microbiologist as I am. Uh, is that balanced? I, w- I would like to see someone can actually work that out. I don't think it will be. Well, maybe someone will write in and let us know. Back after this.
107.2 camfm.co.uk your station your camfm so welcome back and that was every you and every me by placebo which was just there because of the artist's name well oh and it's a great song it's a wonderful song it's great and a great album it's probably i think it's our best album i think that's likely um yes yeah, so i've been looking at marmite statistics uh apparently it has no saturated fats so that's but you could get that butter on your bread, so I don't know, Marmite and Butter, is that good idea? Also, there is a difference between British and New Zealand Marmite. So, oh, wow. Uh, so, so, this, this, so Marmite is sold as Marmite rather than only Vegemite being sold in New Zealand, apparently. Well, I think this is the odd thing, because uh, we've had, I think we've had a show before, that New Zealand licensed it a long time before they started like, distributing worldwide. Huh. So, so for historical reasons, they get the good stuff rather than any of these. Well, n- no, I think they just made up their own thing. They just licensed the name. Oh, I see, I see, I see. Um, but all this talk of you know getting all our food from one source reminded me of um, an article on io9.com about how um, back in you know mid twentieth century science fiction, everyone assumed that you know as the human population grew and our capacity to grow food couldn't keep up, we'd end up with some kind of you know artificial food or some kind of diet pill just to. Get everything we need from one tiny pill. And they point Star Trek again. Sorry. Star Trek again. I'm, I, I, I believe you. Um, but the they they pointed out that there's a bunch of um, pretty significant problems to getting all your, all, all your nutrition from a pill. We we already touched on the fiber issue, um, but they also pointed out that you know that humans don't. It, well, I, I'm not that up on the the mechanics of eating, but um, people. People have you know a number of different cues to want them to eat. Make your body think, you know, I need to eat now. For example, how much stuff is in your stomach? And if you're just eating a pill, that's not really going to cut it. But, oh well. So, what was your conclusion from the nutritional facts? Uh, I found somebody has a website on Tripod still. Wow. Tripod.com. That's a blast from the okay, early nineties. Uh, to, to a non-nerd, can you just explain what that do, is? Do you remember GeoCities? Yes. Very yeah. Good. Imagine that. Okay. So really, really a uh, website hosting. Uh, he has his own maybe bonkers Marmite. There's a, there's an awful lot about Marmite recipes. No one seems to have done a... I might have to keep searching a bit longer. If I do find anything, I will. But I'm, I'm, I found a few reports of people getting very ill from nutritional deficiencies trying it. But, okay, um, okay well, I'll, I'll cancel my experiments. Yes. Never mind. Um, anyway, um, the... Actually, actually, the same author of the of the post about no longer identifying as a skeptic was extremely uh, scathing of the Matrix trilogy. He he described the first Matrix as the worst film ever made, which seems a little harsh. Um, but the, but the I've seen worse films, generally involving Jason Statham. Yeah. Absolutely. I mm, tell me more. Don't tell me more. Maybe we'll come back to that. But um, the, the first Matrix film had you know had its fair share of you know garbage being invented to. You know, justify the film, but there was I think it was really the second one that took the cake at the end. They had the they had the whole sequence where, where he meets the architects. But guys, it's it's a film, right? Isn't it supposed to leap your imagination away to a different place and a different world of what might be? Yeah, it's more script writing that's the issue. Oh right. Okay. <laughs> well, you, you have you have the biggest issue with this, I think. Eddie. Well, so we see the architect. Uh-oh. He basically just starts spewing more and more rubbish. He just. Oh, he just lists words that the scriptwriters come across, which sound scientific. Yeah, d- d- ah, have you okay. seen the episode in Friends where Joey gets hold of the thesaurus and starts writing uh, Chandler's adoption letter so they can have adopt a child? No, but I can imagine. So there's things like a pulsating vascular muscle instead of he has a big heart, uh, and things like this. And it feels like that they've just gone for work. And at the end of the day, all he's saying is, uh, "Yeah, you, you got here because a set of chances occurred. That's that's life." And, you know, it's really not profound. It's, and then he goes on and on just saying, 
actually everything I've said is just rubbish because you're not going to do what I've said. Yeah, and, and, and Donnie Darko fell, fell down on this kind of point as well. Like the, the there was this weird like time travel, multiple universes subplot there, but th- it, it was dressed up as in, with, with all kinds of babble, um, which kind of almost detracted from. It, it didn't make it mysterious; it just made it confusing and nonsensical. Well, most people I know have watched it. Oh, the ending is because he was just dreaming shortly before he de- died because they chose to use Tears for Fears' Mad World, obviously redone, and it, that's what the lyrics are. So people latched about rather than this paper pamphlet, which was released at some showings. I don't know if they were ever a commercial showing. Oh, the the, um, the, the DVD extras contain extremely hard to read um, pseudoscientific notes on what the film means. Yeah, and I mean I have read what the film means because I was so curious, and it's just rubbish. Yeah, it's a great movie, but the pseudoscience behind it just is overly complex. And to really understand what the director was trying to come up with, you go. This is just worse than the movie. It brings the movie down rather than up. It's quite quite an achievement, I think. So, in other words, it's a bit like those face creams where if you want to believe that they're going to make you 20 years younger, then good for you, but don't put it on the label claiming it to be <laughs> truth. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's some truth to that. But in the course of looking into this, I discovered there's a Wikipedia category which is fiction narrated by a dead person. Um, so American ne- Beauty. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Well, no, actually, that's not a spoiler. He says so in the first moment. But yeah, 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 no, I was going to say that opens up. This is before I was dead. In a year, I'll be dead. That is the opening of the movie. So, yeah, no. Yeah, but it, it's a quite surprisingly short list. I was expecting it to be much longer than the 30 or so it was. Oh, there's a famous war book where the narrator's dead for only for the last chapter. We'll move on quickly before someone knows I've just made we'll, a link that I don't remember. We'll now. come back to that. But um, since, since, since the last show, um, Andy gave a talk at a showing of Dr. Strangelove at the Arts Picture House. Um, and the, the title character had an extremely minor role to play in the film which was mostly him like, talking rubbish about um, some kind of doomsday device and again it was you know, just spewing words and I, don't, I really don't understand why the film was named for him have you seen it Jake? negative okay it's it is weird and he, in fact it's in a wheelchair and bonkers it's just it now just seems compared to what is a very clever movie otherwise it just feels offensive it's, re- it's extremely ham-fisted and he, he 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 kind of lapses into bad um, Nazi pastiches, and someone should have just cut that whole section out. And you guys should write your own movie. Oh, we would do it so much. Better. I was going to say, I think it would be a start. Have, have found a paper on people who are sensitive to vitamin B twelve suffering from eating marmite. Oh dear, there's oh. a scientific paper on that. There's nice. also a scientific paper on. Um, Eating chocolate and marmite. I don't. Don't. Um, that's from. That Stars doesn't sound like a combination. Wine and chocolate. Yes, you know. But marmite and chocolate. Really. Mar- marmite. I've, I've eaten marmite. Marmite laced chocolate, and that was pretty marmite good. Marmite laced chocolate. Well, you know, chocolate with added marmite. I that, see. that was fine. The, the well, marmite, marmite cereal bars were not good. Sh- should we leave you to fight this out during the next track? That sounds good. Yeah. Yes. How about that? Thank you. 
97.2 camfm.co.uk on air and online your camfm so that was Leaving Earth by Clint Mansell from the Mass Effect 3 soundtrack. Yeah, Clint Mansell writes all the best film and apparently video game soundtracks. Yes, and all the soundtracks we ever play on the show. That's not entirely true, but... It's probably a majority at this point. Well, he does do science fiction soundtracks very well. I I loved... Are you, are you calling Requiem for a Dream uh, science fiction? Good point. I forgot. No, that is not science fiction. I, mean, I, guess, I guess Pi is science fiction. And Moon. Moon. Moon is science fiction. And other stuff. The Fountain, yep. 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 Um, also, Black Swan, not so much. Not science fiction, unless she was a secret Terminator. Hmm. Well, uh, that that would have been an unconventional twist. I don't think the film would have really helped. I don't think it would have sold it. so well. Never mind. So, Mass Effect, for people who don't know, is a computer game. It's a trilogy, and uh, yeah, not too long ago, the third part of the trilogy came out, and it's quite interesting because basically, I think Bioware looks and went right. We haven't got the rights to Star Wars because they've done two Star Wars games. We're going to reinvent Star Wars. Because all the special abilities you get are like Star Wars Force Pass, but they have a different reason for it, and they call them biotics. biotics. Which makes it sound scientific. And it is a lot more hardcore sci-fi than, say, Star Wars. It's a lot it's a lot darker in places and a lot more... You sort of can feel that it's believable. There aren't people with lightsabers. Biotic, just, sorry, a flashback, it just reminds me of those stupid Stup- glasses... <laughs> Google has come out with oh yeah because Google talk about um, for people who haven't heard about this they, these are basically glasses and there's a little screen top right hand corner and when you look at a window for example of a shop it might tell you what's on discount it will tell you where the subway is and that sort of thing and I looked at those and I thought okay, that's biotics for you you know they're, they're reinventing the robotic eye but instead it's on your eye and tells you technical stuff and I just thought for goodness sake isn't that what your eyes and your brain are for in the first place <laughs> and that's what reminds me of biotics but well, yeah, so they, they just make me think of probiotic yogurts. Yeah, that's the other thing. Is maybe that's what happened. Well, the plot is that someone released Element Zero over a part of Earth and caused these people to start getting biotic powers. And there are other races who already have biotic powers. And um, so, what, so what Element Zero is some neutrons and nothing else. Well, this is the thing. They don't ever. It's a MacGuffin, which we'll come to in a moment. What a MacGuffin is and other plots, but it it is an ele- They call it Ezo a lot of the time, and it does like it's what makes a faster than light cause works when a faster than light. It's what powers biotic stuff. Um, but yet, in theory, if you were trying to name what element zero would be, it would be, because uh, the atomic numbers are protons, so it would be zero, so no protons, so just a neutron. Which, of course, is not very interesting. But the other thing it could be is, like a lot of elements have uh, different isotopes, so you have carbon-12 and carbon-13, which has more neutrons. There's two stable forms of neutron elements, and the first one is neutronium. Sorry, it's neutrons. And the other one is neutronium, which is when you get loads and loads together and they just stick together. And basically, gravity holds them together, and that's about the size of a star. It's also one of the densest materials we know. And does this occur naturally? Yes, when stars explode, so forming a neutron star. I've got to get me one of those. But basically, and I'm going to get this wrong, astronomy will kill me, but basically when a sun goes through one of the right phase changes, so a supernova point, it leaves an iron core at the centre that then collapses even further. And basically all that mass of the star ends up in a very, very tiny amount. And I think it's, you know, we're talking about distances, you can non-astronomical distances, so small distances, because there's no gaps between the atoms anymore. All the neutrons are right up against each other. So it's a tiny, tiny material. Uh, Of course, people who talk about making stuff from neutronium, which is often in stories, 
ignore the fact as soon as you took some away from the star, assuming you get it out of the gravity well that's there, uh, it would just explode to pieces of neutrons because the neutrons don't necessarily want to stick together. So you can't have a small piece of neutronium to, well, to power your spaceship or something? That's, that's kind of what they're suggesting. It is like a magical MacGuffin-y material. Uh, MacGuffin-y, sorry. Um, MacGuffin-y? So a MacGuffin, and yeah, I was going to bring this up because a MacGuffin is... Alfred Hitchcock came up with this idea. is a device in a plot that never is really explained isn't actually important, but drives the plot. So it could be a character or a device. So take Pulp Fiction. There's a briefcase the whole way through the story. Exactly. You don't know what's in it, uh, but you don't need to know what's in it. Uh, oddly enough, George Lucas has a different definition of it, uh, which says he says R2-D2 is a MacGuffin, which is odd, because he seems to think it's essential to the plot, which is yeah, uh, everyone relates reason, to, yes. which is a bit bit weird, but um, he's... a I don't think it's as good as Alfred Hitchcock. Is it? Is it a uh, analogy for uh, um, just thinking scientifically here for just something random that cannot be explained when in the plot well, to drive things, or is it? it I mean, a briefcase you can explain that people want it, but, but you don't need to know why they want it. You just need to know that everyone's mm-hmm. fighting over it. So it happens a lot of things. People want stuff. Often it's money, which people understand, but you don't have to. Uh, and actually, Steven Spielberg used the term when he's talking about Indiana Jones and Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Is he sympathised for people who didn't like the MacGuffin? Which uh, of course be- was the Crystal Skull in question. Yeah, because he never liked it. He didn't like that element. And I have to say, I think he's quite right there. It's one of the things I found so awkward about movies. In previous ones, it'd been the Holy Grail. People wanted this object, which wasn't really in the movie. It was just the driving force of the movie. Um, and obviously, different movies, it has a more, larger or smaller effect. But... I think he was right in saying they picked something which was so unrelatable that people didn't really get a passion for it. Yeah, and I, I guess it, it's it's strange because to make an indie film, all you really had to do is have you know him wearing hats and swinging around and having having you know, firefights and sneaking around. You don't really need any kind of alien skulls or anything kicking around. No, and it, it was odd they decided to go with the alien thing. It, that kind of spoiled it. I mean, it, there are reasons why they may have chosen to do it, but I don't think they really held true. Um, so th- I think I think we can start attacking Star Trek now. Um, well, as as, uh, as people who've seen Star Trek, take it away. Yeah, have you never seen Star I've, Trek? I, I, this is, this is a rec- Everybody must have this seen Star rec- Trek at least once. I've seen a, n- a number of Star Trek episodes on various things. I saw the most recent film, but I've. I can't believe we're discussing Star Trek. Well, amazing. It, it, it's it's just a perfect place for technobabble. It's a perfect place where they just make up science to answer things. Because this is this is it's in Star Trek where they literally would have in the script a section marked bracket, square bracket technobabble. And really? Then, and then they had someone on the writing staff whose job it was to go through and just insert garbage into those spaces. But like, wow. Make up some words and. But write. they realised how stupid it was getting because they had episodes where they would technobabble people to confuse them, other people, like other aliens and stuff. So when they're trying to double, lie. double bluff, so so yes. the script writers would mock their own techno babble. Wow, that's um, quite impressive. Um, but there are some. The, I, I love I love the Heisenberg compensators because basically it's a way around the fact it, they never explain what they're for, but it has to be there to explain how the fact they can do things that the Heisenberg uncertainty principle says they can't. So it's like we have a thing that compensates for a law of physics we don't like. Is this also why they once they started down that route they were forever tripping over themselves and having to correct and come up with more and more reasons because of course once you once you step over one law of physics then it's very easy to step over the next law and they're constantly correcting themselves on it I think Star Trek definitely suffers from that because when they released Enterprise which was like a prequel to the other ones I think a lot of the hardcore Star Trek fans got really annoyed how much they had to sort of rewrite yes. because it had just got too messy and 
I mean, some of us will go, it's just Star Trek, but for some people, that jarring their own mythology, as it were, can actually really upset the plot. And they do make, name all these random particles, and if they use the same randomly made up particle twice to do completely different things, if they don't fit, that annoys people. And, and especially the Star Trek fans, who I've always been, I've only met a few proper Star Trek fans, and, and I mean proper Star Trek fans in my life, but it's unbelievable how their knowledge of that show is so in-depth, um, and you wonder what they might have done with their life. Um, I can't believe I'm saying this on air, but if they'd <laughs> done that and focused on, on getting a degree, they would be such absolute whiz kids of course some, some people have degrees and know about Star Trek so that's true yeah but the, speak Klingon as well no the um, you you mentioning um, Spielberg talking talk, talking about his MacGuffins and saying oh you know I didn't really like that and uh, identifying that he wasn't that comfortable with it reminded me of um, the, the commentary for Constellation Games a no- novel we've mentioned on the show before uh, by Leonard Richardson which everyone should read it's, it's, it's an excellent novel being serialised uh, week by week by email what's it called? Constellation Games Constellation Games uh, okay and the premise is that um, turns out the moon, the moon has been uh, colonised by aliens who are basically alien anthropologists and their thing is they go, they go around the universe um Getting data on civilizations, including all their video games. Fantastic! And, and the protagonist is a video games author and reviewer who ends up reviewing alien video games, and in the course of doing so, finding out these things about these civilizations. Which, uh, because games are art, which tell you something about the, the cultures who, who are behind them. But um, so Len- Leonard, that doesn't bode well for us, really. As far as I can make out, most computer games are either like Zelda and they're a puzzle, or they're shoot them up. Yeah, or, or, or you know, Angry Birds is one very simple mechanic repeated forever. And the, the protagonist used it's like to... like Pong, really. Yeah, Angry the... Birds is, is to 2010 as Ping and Pong, that, that game with the sliding bars, yeah, was yeah, to the yeah. 1980s, basically. But basically the same mechanic, right? You have, yeah. you have a thing which you bounce across using a very simple physics model. Exactly. But he, so he has running commentaries every week, a couple of days after the, ep- the uh, chapter is published. And he quite often says, you know, here, here, is, here is a thing you're probably going to get hung up on, but I'm just going to say, you know, this doesn't make any sense. I acknowledge that, but I'm taking you know, I'm exercising creative license here. And so there are parts where he's, you know, where, where he has tried to sort of flesh out, you know, why this makes sense and you know, is, is justifiable for science to put in the novel. Are, are we talking about a, a scientific novel or academic papers? Uh, a novel. Okay, no, but I, I was being slightly sarcastic because you could apply that to academic papers. Everything you've just said. Oh, so yeah. well, I have a, uh, I have a ha- creative license, and my methodology shows that this is entirely justified. <laughs> it's interesting. It's interesting you bring this up because I've got uh, one of the things I looked up was. T- so we're talking about where technobabble is used for effect in MacGuffins, or where it just like sort of builds up to a point it breaks things apart as it does in Star Trek. Um, but there's also an example where it's been used to convince people that something's true when it isn't. So there was a paper by um, a guy called Alan Skol- Sk- Sokol, something like that, S-O-K-A-L, uh, and he called it transgressing the boundaries towards a transformative Brilliant. heuristics of quantum gravity. Yeah, and it got through. Yes, yeah, so this was published in 1996, and he submitted, submitted it as a real, but it was in fact a nonsensical paper, to the journal Social Text. And... Uh, and he was meant to be a supposedly serious journal, uh, on po- and it was meant to be on postmodern theory. Uh, but it was just totally meaningless within Pentral language. He literally just put random words in. It's complete and utter rubbish, and it got through the reviewers. I mean, well, it's terrifying. It wasn't a peer-reviewed journal at the time. Ah, okay. Uh, so okay. that, but it was considering itself good. And it was an example of why when peer review could work. Right. Um, but there have been examples where someone made a computer program that generated random papers, and I know that. 
uh, got they got that published once. And the, the, then, one of those was accepted to a computer science conference, but then, yeah, well, but that's but then, the next bit. Then the organisers um, realised just in time and cancelled the cancelled the speaker's slot. Well, what was disappointing about that was they. Um, actually were going to make the slides randomly generated as they went along, <laughs> which I thought was brilliant. But um, Procedural PowerPoint. So this, this actually has a name. Um, it's called Sespicridalian Obscurification. This is the name for making up papers? No, this is the name for using very long words to make things confusing. Say, say that one more time. I, I think I got it slightly wrong. Sesquipedalian Obscurantism. Wow. So Sesquipedalian is basically the Latin word for something like a word that's six and five feet long. Um, but yes, and then a good example of this is when someone used it as well um, with the dihydrogen monoxide, which, turned, which is of course you know a very dangerous chemical known to everyone else as water. But if you write about it in a really obscure scientific way, you could say all the dangerous things water does, like it erodes stuff, it kills people, you know, yes. you can drown in it. Uh, and it actually, this was originally done as see if someone could use this as a way of tricking people. Wow. And I think it might even be a school kid. I, I, can't remember exact original source, but it gets picked up once in a while, once in a while by politicians. And there's a few times people have tried to ban dihydrogen monoxide yeah. since then. Well, the monoxide that will just send a, a, alarm bells off in everybody's head uh, for the wrong reason in this case. Because everyone's so used to carbon monoxide. Exactly. Yeah. So um, that's about all we have time for. But conveniently, as we were talking about using uh, language to trick people, um, next week our speaker Emma Dugan will be talking about etymology in of language used in fiction. Until then, goodbye. Thank you, Jacob. Thank, Thank you very much for having me on the show.